for June 6th, 2011. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 153, Captain Michael Ironside of the USS Ironside. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, the podcast where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Our normal host, Matt Rather, is in a submarine deep beneath the Pacific Ocean, plotting the destruction of mankind, (laughs) so I will be substituting for him as your host, Peter Fenzel, here with an oh-too-large team of superheroes to overthink (laughs) X-Men First Class. We've unnecessarily added all your favorites, both for fan service and for B, C, D, and E storylines. So, without further ado, today's question. If you could take any comic book property and set it in the historical time period of your choosing for a reboot, what would you choose and where would you set it? Starting at the beginning of the alphabet, and I'm going to be sacrificing for the greater good here, uh, much like so many comic book characters of old, only to be brought back after my uh, fake comic book death with an elaborate retcon. Uh, But we will start today... Uh, live from New York, New York, the city's so nice, they named it twice, Matt Belinke. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Professor F. <laughs> oh, thank um, you very much. Awesome. I'm going to have all the ladies call me that from now on. Definitely. So, I thought about the, uh, thought about the question a bunch. I think my uh, retcon is going to be called The Iron Gentleman, <laughs> and it's going to be a uh, the Iron Man, but set in, um, in 1794. And instead of Tony Stock, the hero is going to be uh, James Watt, who, as we all know, is a a Scottish mechanical engineer who really added some critical refinements to the steam engine. The villain will be uh, Robespierre, the the, the, uh, gentleman from the French Revolution. Uh, The reign of terror is on in full. He has this idea that he's going to uh, overthrow England and create this sort of uh, tyranny of reason. And uh, it's up to James Watt to build a steam-powered uh, suit of armor uh, that he will will, will then be uh, – most of the movie will be him trying to navigate the, uh, the treacherous waters of the English Channel to sail the thing over to France so he can very slowly wreak havoc, uh, but only if he has enough water to boil to power the thing. Excellent. Wow. I, I'm, I'm already enthralled. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's going to be pretty. Uh, Isn't James Watt kind of for reason? I mean, he's he's for. Is he like conflicted? Not, basically, what it comes down to is the big conflict that he has is uh, which does he like? Which is more powerful, his love of reason or his hatred of the French? And he <laughs> wow! That, like he really doesn't like the French, uh, can, and if possible, can, he wants to he wants to smash them under his steam powered mechanical grip. <laughs> Iron Man, Iron Man himself has had this conflict in in existing issues in Marvel Comics continuity when dealing with other technological villains. So it's it's not it's not out of character. Yeah, yeah. I, I was actually going to propose as a potential secondary villain uh, the French chemist and engineer Jules, for whom another you know physical constant is named, who's you know sort of contemporary of his and also doing similar experiments. That could be good. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking for casting that uh, it possibly he is a, a Scottish gentleman, so possible Ewan McGregor. If he's not available, you could go with James McAvoy, who's already had the experience playing a Marvel superhero. Awesome, excellent. That's because yeah, because the movie that we just all are talking about tonight uh, was set in the '60s, right? As a sort of original prequel story of the X Men, and that's sort of the uh, the uh, he'd have to bump it back and change his slang when he's hitting on the ladies. It wouldn't be groovy. What, what would you use in the 1700s if you were trying to hit Huggis on the ladies? Or... Huggis. Huggis. <laughs> <something like laughs> <Huggis-y. laughs> 
We'll leave you to ponder that and jump to Mark Lee. Wow, you guys are all pretty late in the alphabet. I'm pretty lucky. Uh, I'm looking at your last names now, and I'm kind of incredulous as to how far away you are from the beginning. But uh, I guess it's just part of being on the edge. So, uh, so Mark, <laughs> yes. what's your what's your choice? What's your choice for the? Evening? All right, I'm going to go a little bit outside of the box here, as we are wont to do with the question of the week. I'm going to go with Calvin and Hobbes, and I'm going to reboot it in the 21st century. <laughs> Here's why. Okay, do you guys remember Calvin and Hobbes? I don't know about you, but I read them and adored them. Uh, as like very integral parts of my childhood and adolescence. Um, Calvin Hobbes was so much about him, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, spending time and screwing around outside, having fun, playing like kids used to play, right? Now, can you imagine, you know, what the same character and the same author, Bill Watterson, is that Bill Watterson? Um, What the same character and same author, how they would handle the modern era of, you know, Facebook and cell phones and iPads and whatnot. Basically, I'm wondering, like, would Calvin still manage to get out of the house, or would he just be stuck, like, playing Minecraft all day? <laughs> that is definitely an interesting question. I mean, I think the answer is probably probably Minecraft. Would he have diabetes? Would Calvin have diabetes? As so many children. <laughs> would he have to struggle with that? that would, 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 would his imaginary character instead be like his st- pet uh, stuffed tiger? Would it be uh, like you know a character in World of Warcraft, for example? Yeah. Would he it would be, just be on, like, a, like a talking iPad? <laughs> exactly. There is exactly. in fact an app. Don't you that. mean? Don't you mean Superbook? <laughs> oh wow! Wow! I remember Superbooks definitely. That was biblical, right? Superbooks. Yeah, the, it was. It was a magic techno or magic or technological book that let the kids travel back in time to biblical adventures and uh, yep. and yeah, that that would be an iPad today. Yeah, exactly. It would be super I, I just think of it as a Penny's uh, magical book from Inspector Gadget. Yeah, her right, computer book. Uh, yeah. It's basically yeah. the iPad. I'm oh, pretty sure yeah, yeah, I remember that. the idea. I want one yeah. of those so bad. Well, now you can buy one. Well, I call, I call my smartphone my Ziggy after Quantum Leap. So. <laughs> awesome. And with that, let's jump over to Josh McNeil. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Um, I'm I, my, my first thought was uh, Green Arrow at Agincourt. Uh, just because he would be completely indistinguishable from the other 5,000 English bowmen. But uh, I'm going to go with Watchmen, set in the 16th century. Uh, and so Dr. Manhattan is uh, is actually destroyed in a horrific actual watchwork accident. And <laughs> puts himself back together as watchwork. <laughs> So I don't That's, know what he is. Like, he's like Dr. Tiny Gear or something along those lines. But, uh. Oh, man. I'm trying to even imagine what the conflict would be that would drive the action of the story. Like, it would be like Instead the, of, the, 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 the war fighting of, King Gobieski. No, wait, that's too late. So instead of, like, bringing in an interplanetary space squid, they get an elephant from Africa and drop it onto Paris out of a balloon. (laughs) (laughs) Tales from the Black Freighter would just be a newspaper. (laughs) And the the war that they'd be... The the Ozymandias equivalent before stalling would be the, the invasion of the Spanish Armada. Oh, right. Of course, of course. Definitely. That makes sense. That's actually probably what happened. It's better than that whole wind story where it's like, oh, it's a storm. Oh, no. The the key piece of the whole thing, though, is that Nixon is still president. (laughs) (laughs) And and really, in a way, wasn't Queen Elizabeth the Nixon of her time? In a way. (laughs) In a way. (laughs) 
not a I, I too am the Virgin Queen. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, so John, John Parrish, John Parrish, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to take up take it up next because you're next in the alphabet. What up? All right, I'm going to deal with one of the most adored characters in comic book continuity, Superman, who was, as as many people know, the creation of uh, Siegel and Schuster, and in, incorporates already some elements of Jewish mythology. His real name being Kal El. So I would retcon him as a as a Jewish superhero in the era of the uh, depicted as the Book of Exodus in the Torah. So instead of uh, Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt with, you know, signs and miracles, Superman would do it by, you know, blowing on the Nile with his super breath and turning it into blood or by, you know, scooping up a big, you know, tidal wave full of frogs from India and dropping them on Egypt or uh, the killing all the firstborn would be a little tricky given Superman's existing codes versus killings, but I'd, I'd, I'd find a way to make that work too. And he would... You know, and he would lead the he would lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and then when the Egyptians followed him, he would pound the Red Sea with supersonic force and divide it into a tidal into standing tidal waves and let them pass, and then crush it back on them, etc. So, so all the existing Exodus miracles will just be retconned as Superman's powers, and then you know he would be exposed to kryptonite on Mount Sinai and die before reaching the the promised land. As, no, as no, 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 no. I wanted him to be like frozen in ice or something like that and then re-brought back in the 70s so that his Clark Kent alter ego could be played by Woody Allen. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right? Or, Am I or right? May, or maybe frozen in ice and, and restored for the founding of the modern state of Israel. What, what do I stand I, for? Vetting, <laughs> passive-aggressiveness, and the Hebrew way. <laughs> I went there. Oh, I'm sorry, you guys. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It's the kryptonite with the. <laughs> I don't. All uh, right. I don't know if I don't. I mean, there's a, there's already a lot to talk about when we're unpacking Zionism and uh, and X Men First Class, which is a very has a lot to say about Zionism. But we'll save that for the uh, the meat because obviously we want to get past our nice little question. Uh, okay, so coming up next is Dave Schechner. You're before Jordan in the last name of the alphabet. we got a couple of quality S's, speaking of Supermen, yeah. uh, emblazons yeah, well, on their chest, so uh, why don't you take it? I'm before Jordan only in the spelling of the last name. I would put him as a superior man in all other regards. Uh, um, war and peace in the hearts of his countrymen, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, pretty know. much. Um, you're a close second, though. You're a runner-up. Silver medal, right? Man, Parich, I was, <laughs> I, I was going to rewrite the Superman story to be uh, sort of more Hebraic by putting him in the uh, the first book of the Gospels. And having him do all sorts of miracles like um, raising the dead and turning, you know, one loaf and one fish into enough to feed 70. But, yeah, but, um, but, yeah. but Ex- Exodus has a, has a lot more miracles that seem more in line with Superman's existing suite of powers. It, it, I've said this for years, that the Old Testament does seem more miraculous and godlike than anything in the New Testament. <laughs> um, that just might be personal bias. Anyway, okay. So uh, you know, my so my actual uh, proposition for this is a uh, is a movie. It's sort of an art house science fiction movie. I like to call T H Wendigo eleven thirty eight. So uh, so if people don't know the Wendigo, uh, it is it is one of if not the only sort of Canadian Native American um, fairy tales that has been co opted by the. Um, by the Marvel Comics universe. Marvel, you know, famous for taking almost any of the world's religions and converting it to an incredibly schmaltzy superhero at some point or another. See also the rest of the Asgardian canon as emblemized in, in the Thor universe. But the Wendigo is this uh, cautionary tale. Uh, 
<laughs> like it's a cautionary tale. It's like a warning against. Yeah, anyway. no, it's, it's against cannibals. <laughs> it's instructive. It's meant to be didactic. It's instructive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a passion play in many regards. Yeah. Um, about about uh, eating your fellow man. You know, if you get trapped, <laughs> if you get trapped in the Canadian Rockies and in you know some snowdrift on the side of the mountain, and you have nothing left to eat, if you consume the flesh of your fellow man, you're transformed into the Wendigo. And, and as far as I know, the Wendigo is uh, is like indefatigable. Like all he does is create more Wendigos. So I, I'm picturing a sort of a, like a Wall-E type uh, film, like set you know well past the Wendigo apocalypse, where they've completely consumed all of mankind and then each other. And there's just like a single Wendigo left uh, in the post-apocalyptic future to sort of ponder himself and his nature in the universe and the concept of life and humanity. Um, but of course, also in sort of Pokemon fashion, the only thing Wendigo can say, other than sort of muted growls, is Wendigo. So um, I'm thinking Ben Affleck for the lead, you know? <laughs> uh, I awesome, love that awesome. Canada is such a desolate wasteland that they need an anti-cannibalism cautionary <laughs> <camp>. <laughs> children about cannibalism really <laughs> i like the idea isn't intuitive enough that you have to still communicate it through like symbol and metaphor like you're not you can't just tell people don't eat each other right. you have to like come up with a story that makes it more you know understandable and comprehensible definitely that's hilarious i love that stuff all right Frankly, so now we got then teaching everyone in america about the donner party which is like yeah. the only thing any of us knows about going to california it's like <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I could use Expedia. I know a couple yeah. of people. Like, that has never shown up in a kayak search once. <laughs> oh, well, there was that one time, but come on. Oh, man. All right, so let's go to this, the second of our two Supermen of the evening, Mr. Stokes. Thanks for joining us. We, haven't, we don't get to hear from you all that often anymore, so this is exciting. Oh, it's nice to be here. Um, you know, it's been a long question, so I'll keep this quick. I'm rebooting Garfield. In ancient Egypt, when cats were when cats were worshipped as gods, um, we'll, we'll cast uh, Michael Fassbender as John, so the ladies have a reason to come see it. And uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Excellent, that's awesome. I like that very much. Are we, we going to have like a Cleopatra thing going on, or is, are we actually going back to like legit ancient Egypt, like Old Kingdom, New Kingdom, like like Gar- like Garfield has two different types of lasagna that have to be merged into one delicious lasagna over the course of history. <laughs> You know, I really wonder if they had like a a lasagna analog in ancient Egypt. It seems like the way that papyrus is actually constructed that they they knew about laying sheets of things down on top of each other. <laughs> but whether they had applied that to to food or whether it's like how the Incas had wheels but they never used them for like for carts, they just used them for children's toys. Yeah. So these are the the questions that this movie could answer for us. Right, right. Well, and Schechner actually just typed very something very funny in the back channel. I'll share it with the group, please. Oh Schechner. yeah, no. In in your canon, Jordan, does uh does Odie weigh your soul against a feather after you die? <laughs> <laughs> actually, I'm sorry, that's too restrictive. Just in general, do people think that uh, after you die, Odie weighs your soul against a feather? I only hope. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, <laughs> I, I could I could reference like Garfield and putting his semen on a piece of lettuce, but I don't think we want to explore that side of Egyptian myth today. We've all uh, read your fanfic, Pete. www.egyptiangarfieldsexyfiction.com. But does anyone oh. know enough about the Egyptian calendar to know what the equivalent of Monday would be? Wow. <laughs> Oh, I don't like Egyptian Mondays. I, I hate sure. inundations. It's like, oh man, I hate bird basket rope snake. <laughs> oh man, oh man, I hate I hate those years when the Nile floods. Uh. Oh. 
Exactly. Oh, man. All right, that's everybody By the else. way, sorry, just a quick breaking news. Quick Google search indicates that uh, in uh, an episode of the Garfield TV show, uh, Garfield, his nine lives in 1988, uh, it did feature Garfield playing, uh, quote-unquote, ancient Egyptian royalty, according to IMDb. <laughs> so this might have already been done. Well, the challenge to our readers is to go through and find all the instances where these have already been done, because they've been making a lot of comic books, and they come up with all sorts of ideas. Are you kidding me? They actually... Mother... <laughs> I hate to break it to you. They've done the, like, steampunk Iron Man, like, a whole bunch of times. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I don't know if they've actually made him James Watts. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, yeah. Jordan, um, you just had the experience that like any film producer has when he goes to Comic Con. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what you've uh, what you've done it's been done twice before, to my knowledge. Uh, once in canon. Yeah, anyway. Oh man. The difference uh, being so that I think this is like consciously the stupidest idea I could think of. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Garfield did it. Like Garfield does all your stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Just just do it with Heathcliff. That'll be it'll be you'll see it as bold and groundbreaking. Do it in black and white. <laughs> awesome. All right. So I've I've listened to all of the ideas and I've had enough time waiting that I have two. You guys get to pick which one is better, or maybe we'll just move on. Um, the first is I take the Green Lantern, but I set him in uh, South Central LA in the early '90s, and the power of the ring is to try to use your imagination to survive the ghetto and go to college. Um, <laughs> It's like Spike Lee's Green Lantern. Not John Singleton's, like, the story of Hal Jordan. Yeah. No, it's, it's Green Lantern based on a novel by Sapphire. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the other one is, of course, like, envision a, a grand panorama, waves of heat flowing over the sand, a dot in the distance that moves ever closer, periodically squirting out little bits of stickiness and going, fuck. It's Spider-Man of Arabia. Um, he, he can't. He can't get around very well. Just, every time he's, a fight, he's like, I gotta get, I gotta split. Like, oh, crap. Because it's just sand all over the place. But he still signify the um, various Arabians uh, in, in his sort of uh, particular, you know, uh, patriarchal narrative of, uh, of, of yep. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Uh, if, if if I can find it, I'm going to post it on the comments. But um, that has actually kind of already been done by <laughs> by, by, Mar- by, Marvel, it, right? by Marvel Comics themselves. <laughs> uh, I, I while I was taking Turkish classes, we were given a copy of Spider Man teaches you how to pray the Muslim way. What? Um, what? I'm, I'm, de- Excuse I am me? Dead. I'm absolutely serious. There, there's a picture. Like he's got the. Um, the sort of uh, a Muslim, you know, kippah equivalent, you know, that sort of skull cap, and he's like, you know, kneeling down to pray on like a spider web themed prayer rug, and he's otherwise like in the full, you know, uh, red, blue, and black Spider-Man um, costume, and yeah, and they tell the story about how like Muhammad was being chased by um, you know, like some thugs at one point, and he ran into a cave to sort of hide from them, and a spider enchanted by the spirit of God that was with him covered over the cave of the spider web and the thieves or, or these thugs passing by you know immediately concluded that he couldn't have run in there because he would have broken the webs to to get through and, and these webs would have taken forever to um to grow so so uh therefore spiders are holy creatures and spider-man is a holy uh, emblem of, of islam wow. wow well i guess we have to go with sinestro to society then <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I gotta throw one more. I really, I really like the Green Lantern idea, but I would actually take him back to uh, sort of prehistoric man before the discovery of fire. So Green Lantern's power is that he has a lantern with fire in it. <laughs> <laughs> in brightest day, in dark. <laughs> no, that was my sight. Yeah. Uh, this is still yellow, though, which is. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> That's because he fears it because it's the power of the gods, clearly. Uh, ooh. Awesome. <laughs> all right. Well, we have all of our answers from our esteemed core. And don't worry, we'll have periodic fight scenes where each of you get precisely two opportunities to show off your mutant powers over the course of the podcast. Yes. Uh, <laughs> definitely. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. X-Men First Class, man. And, you know, I, it's, a, it's funky. It's set in the 60s. It's got that sort of bright 60s colorful tone to it. It's set against the backdrop of the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? You got a, yeah. any sort of thoughts about yeah. the historical context of this movie and any initial thoughts of movie in general? Well, well first off, if, if I can jump in, I'm, I'm, loving that, <clears throat> I'm loving that 60s style, that sort of Mad Men theme. It's very, it's very Sterling Cooper, Lencher, Xavier, I guess. And <laughs> as, as, we, as we know from the, the, our, whatever, our anniversary post where we talked about, uh, where we talked about why we overthink, I, I made the somewhat unpopular point that I've always thought that geeky interests need a little more coolness, a little more style to them, like a little less enthusiasm and a little more distinction and intelligence and critical evaluation. And, and this, to my mind, was a, a perfect example of how that works. Because, you know, it, it applies a little style to a little bit of sophistication. There was a definite motif that they were going for. And while they did seed it with plenty of, you know, references and callbacks to, to other elements of the comic book property, it was also something very, very relevant to the real world. Something that someone who is sort of familiar with the, the Cuban Missile Crisis or the 60s could follow without necessarily having to be vested in the Marvel Comics properties. So I respected that a great deal, and I really liked it, and I'm really a fan of X-Men First Class as a result. Oh, wow, that's really enthusiastic. You didn't think, like, the let's train Havoc, how to blow up mannequin scene would have been lost on people? <laughs> well, well, no, not really, because, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not that well-versed with the Havoc character, except knowing that he's Cyclops' brother and that he projects energy and that he and Cyclops' powers uh, cancel each other out mm-hmm. uh, or that they, they're immune to each other's powers. or whatever. So, I, I, in other words, I know uh, significantly more about the Havoc character than most people. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. I, I just suddenly re- just came to me. Is Havoc supposed to be, like, doing a swinging hula hoop thing with his power rings? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Groovy baby. <laughs> he's, he's like one step shy of a go-go girl. Wow. Okay, so <laughs> let, let me jump in here something about sort of the, the nature of the you know the movie being set in the '60s and the Cuban Missile Crisis type of thing. I think there's a lot of stuff to get to later on, and maybe we can touch on the style stuff. Uh, you know the 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 the, the what well, the Mad Men type of aesthetic later on in the podcast. But what I wanted to talk about specifically first is the history aspect of it. So let me preface this first by saying like I really enjoyed the movie. I thought this is probably the best movie I've seen this summer and the best superhero movie that I've seen in a long time. That being said, a part of the Cuban Missile Crisis thing bothered me a little bit. So I'm doing this partly saying that this bothered me a little bit and also partly just to be devil's advocate. So hear me out on this, right? So here's the setup of this, right? Sebastian Shaw, the Kevin Bacon character, he's, you know, the old school mutant and his plan is to cause a nuclear war because, you know, he's tired of, uh, you know, the non-mutants sort of oppressing the... Um, the you know the, the mutants and he wants to get back at everybody right 
So well, what well, he, I mean, he that, ma- that's part of it. That the, his other part of it is that he, he thinks mutants will survive the nuclear war and will be left on the planet to rule it after sure, all the people sure, are sure, dead. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But so you know, well, his plan then is to take the United States and the Soviet Union and like stoke the tensions, right? Plant the missiles in Turkey, you know, plant the missiles in Cuba. That's his actions. They wouldn't have happened otherwise, right? And to cause the Cuban Missile Crisis and you know to to provoke a nuclear war. Yeah. Which is all fine and good. It works for the movie, but oh, by, by me, the way, everybody like. There are spoilers. I mean, we should not even have to say it at this point because we spoil everything. Uh, it's just sort of what we do. Our parents have always said that to us. But there are be spoilers all up and down this piece. So if you have not heard of the Cuban Missile Crisis and don't know how it is, <laughs> um, either you could go pick up a history book or you listen again here and you just write that stuff down in your pop quiz, hand that right into teach, you'll be golden. <laughs> it is, this is a. It's actually X Men First Class is a documentary, and the events are filmed in real time. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's the setup as it's portrayed in the movie, right? Now, to me, in some way, that could take away a little bit of what the Cuban Missile Crisis was actually about, right? What? Yeah. Okay. So in other words, what they're saying is like, okay. Uh, you know, Soviet Union, United States, there's tensions, the Cold War, and this kind of stuff. But this particular instance of, you know, the two superpowers coming incredibly close to actual nuclear war wasn't really about the two superpowers. It was about some crazy mutant conspiracy. And in some way that, to me, you could argue that that takes away from what the Cuban Missile Crisis was really about. That being, that, that, yeah, that is to say CIA that, you know, conspiracy. the CIA conspiracy. Which no. is the high watermark of geopolitical stupid. <laughs> well, that, that, it's about that, right? The high watermark of geop- geopolitical stupidity. No, That's what Cuban Missile Crisis should be about. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, what man. the Cuban Missile Crisis should be about. And then, again, I'm mostly being devil's advocate here. You can say that you know the X Men movie kind of trivializes that or takes away from that a little bit. So I'm putting that out there. Discuss. Mm. I actually, um, you know, I kind of liked the the parallelism that was being drawn between the Cuban Missile Crisis and what was going on um, with the sort of the central characters in the movie. In, in that, I feel like um, a lot of so the, the previous X Men movies, to a certain amount, have been about have been sort of an extended allegory, as were the characters themselves in the comic books, uh, of like oppressed minorities of various flavors and their interactions with society. And for the most part, the previous films and, and large swaths of the comic books have been about the sort of societal level um, integration or lack thereof, or the sort of understanding between the sort of two tribes of people, the, the mainstream and the minority, um, as they see one another. Whereas this movie is more about um, the, the oppressed minority um, and, and how it conceptualizes itself. Um, how do they see themselves? And, mm-hmm. and it's sort of in that regard kind of a coming-of-age movie. And, and I think the Cuban Missile Crisis in many regards um, was sort of a coming-of-age moment for American politics in the 20th century. It's this point where you know we're forced to really view in stark contrast that we are not the only world superpower and that you know it, there, there's, there's an equal force out there and that if we don't treat it with, with an adult mature hand, you know, we're going to blow up everything. Well, well, not just American politics, but I guess world politics in general, yeah. because it's, yeah, it's yeah. really a sense of, like, like with the mutants in the storyline, it's really a story of discovering your powers and realizing the extent of the damage you can do. Yeah, exactly. Because you know this this was the this was the first this was the first confrontation in the era where both the Americans and the Soviets had access to nuclear weapons. The other, prior to that, you know, the only 
the only time was Hiro- uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where only America had access to them. So this was the first time where America and the Soviets really had to stare in the face the fact that you know they did have the capacity to destroy the entire world. Just, just a, as just sorry, just a quick well actually. I mean, the Korean War, right? A proxy between the United States and the, and the Soviets. Um, both sides had nuclear weapons at that time. And probably not, but not probably not to the extent they had them there during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Which no, but they, they came had. really close to using them. Yeah. Oh well, true. But uh, oh, th- plus, th- were they were like thermonuclear ICBMs and things like that, or no, no, not no, to the, the extent ICBMs they were much later. Oh, much later. So, okay, never mind. I think so, by that point we had the H bomb, but we didn't have interballistic intercontinental ballistics yet. So, so in any case, there there's that sense of you know we have two great nations coming to grips with the power they have to destroy the world. And we also have the various mutant characters coming to grips with the power they have to to change the world. There's Xavier's goal of remaking the world in a more mutant-friendly image, and there's Shaw's goal, which, by the end of the film, spoiler alert, ends up becoming Magneto's goal of remaking the world in a place that is safe for mutants and screw the rest of the, of, of the species. Do you think Magneto's and, and Sebastian Shaw's goals are, are totally similar? I wonder whether Magneto, I mean, certainly when Magneto, again, spoilers, is at some of his more aggressive moments during the film, you get the sense that he wants to kill the people. But over the course of the comic book, and, and I wonder from Magneto's perspective, uh, there, are, there are times when Magneto launches genocidal campaigns, but most of the time Magneto is a little bit more moderate than that. Like he believes in sort of mutant superiority. Right, uh, but not necessarily to the, the extent of exterminating all people. Um, I mean, to to my shame, I can't remember the name of it, but in the comic books, Magneto establishes a mutant homeland. Genosha, you're thinking Genosha, Genosha yeah. right? Or Asteroid so, M as well, yes. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, I mean, his his policy is, which I I, I think. Uh, is sort of consciously Zionist, which yeah. is that he's like, look, we need a homeland, we need a strong defense, we need to show people we mean business, but we can sort of coexist uneasily um, in peace. Right. I think it's also important to point out that um, even in his most genocidal moments, there's less of a megalomaniacal stint to it. It's that you know he sees this as the natural na- natural evolutionary course, and he wants to sort of steer it, not necessarily that he needs to be at the helm and leading it. Right, 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 like, right, like like Shaw's Shaw's goal is is to become the ruler of the world by by root of you know letting mutants take over. Mm-mm-mm. Right, whereas Magneto's got a little bit more complexity to him. I mean, it's, but still, he does take over because I, I always saw Magneto and uh, and Xavier as sort of like uh, like allegories for for black not allegories but sort of representatives of different sides in the conversation over black civil rights as well. Right. I mean, there's also the conversation over Zionism, right, between like sort of Avuka and the more Zionist branches where it's like, oh, we want to try to coexist and be pluralistic versus like we need a homeland and it needs to be a nation, it needs to be established. But also there's this sort of like Charles Xavier is the Booker T. Washington is the Martin Luther King, although that's sort of like historically remembered watered down Martin Luther King, not the sort of like real life, more socialistic Martin Luther King, who was like more in favor of helping the poor and stuff. And then uh, versus sort of like a Malcolm X, W.B. Du Bois, more aggressive kind of separatist, right, who's saying, like, we need to have our own state, right, or we need to empower ourselves. Like, we can't look to humanity as people that we can coexist with. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's that was just sort of it's a it's a it's a dichotomy that cuts across narratives. So maybe it's not just that. Um. The interesting thing about Shaw's goal is that it's really pretty stupid. Because if you <laughs> <laughs> that's the interesting. I'm interesting thing is that Kevin Bacon was trying to carry it, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> if you are one of like 20 people in the world who has mutant superpowers, you are in a better 
sort of situation to take over the world right now than you will be when everybody who's left alive has superpowers. Like, you really right. didn't think that through at all. That's true. And also, you'll live in a greater degree of luxury if you take it over now than if you kill everybody and then take it over. Because then, like, the hundred people left have to, like, do all the agriculture, which kind of... Yeah, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, the the... the the comic book arc I think of where this plot is actually actually happens, although it isn't a plot when it happens, it's just sort of ha- it's just sort of like a story. It's a, it's a story uh, that comes about because of humanity's folly, right? It's the Maestro days of uh, not the um, future perfect storyline from the Hulk, where there sure. is a nuclear war, right? Yeah, Dave, you you've uh, did you even Matt? I is think it, is, it, is this the the, the Planet Hulk storyline? Uh, oh no 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 no! Yeah, this is older than that. Yeah, this is for, this is when the maestro like basically there's a nuclear war and uh, the Hulk absorbs all the radiation. Hulk has a beard, right? That's all I remember about it. <laughs> <laughs> this sort of like Orientalist monarch. It's like awful, awful parody of like an Eastern monarch. He has like a harem. He like builds a city where he like somehow drains all the radiation from it and br- brings together various human survivors and like rules over it as this sort of like Ming the Merciless slash like Mad Max like Thunderdome kind of. He's, 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 he's Hulk is what he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. basically, and he's driven mad with power and with radiation and with age. And and and, and uh, Hulk comes from the past through a time machine, Doctor Doom's time machine battle. With so him. I, I think what we've just decided is that Kevin Bacon must play the Hulk in this uh, <laughs> in this version of it. Has he? I want to go back. I want to go back. I'm sure. I want to go back to what, you know. Pete was talking about the the sort of civil rights era. And that's an interesting sort of piece of this whole thing. X-Men, this is set in, 18, in, in 1962. I think the comic book X-Men started in 1963, and that's really at the height of all the, the civil rights movement uh, that was going on. Uh, and this movie really sort of does some interesting sort of civil rights things. Uh, I was Like, kill the black guy? Like, kill the black guy. There was, I, was, I was actually sitting in a theater, like the, uh, and the entire row behind me was, was full of uh, young African-American folks, and they were pissed the f*** off. Oops, yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> pepper. Um, the, no, really, but it was sort of like, the whole thing is about acceptance and, and all of that, and it just like, it seemed really clumsy to make that mistake. Like and then they leave the X Men with like an Irish guy, a white blonde kid, um, you know, just like the whitest possible group of people. Yeah. Uh, afterwards, and it really just that to me stuck out. Well, that was the but, second most annoying thing for me. But in Josh, the movie. I, but yeah. Josh, say loud, I'm mutant and proud. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, there were, I mean, I mean, the underlying message of of the movie is that blue is the new black, right? Like, if you're blue, you're totally like we accept you. Yeah. Uh, but if you're black, you're you, you're going to get killed by Kevin Bacon. Um, yes. <laughs> the single the single most annoying thing in the movie, though, is why is there a giant satellite dish in Xavier's backyard? This is 1862. In 1862, there were like eight satellites. 1962, first of all. I'm sorry, 1962. I get my past confused. But like, seriously, satellites started. Sputnik was 57. What what satellites is he communicating with in his backyard? (laughs) Cell phones were very large back then. And you know, uh, actually, Josh, I think this is something to to raise. Which I don't. I don't want to be like the. the curmudgeon of the group, but like, although this movie was good, it's not like Dark Knight good. It's still oh. pretty by the numbers. It's just it just does the numbers very well. Just re- relative to the other X Men films, it's Citizen Kane. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> relative, here's a here's a good example. Two. Yeah, 
Here's I a mean, good example of something that like annoyed me. Why is Cerebro already in existence when he shows up at the CIA headquarters, and it just happens to be like perfectly calibrated so he could step in and use it? Yeah. You know, th- there's a lot of sort of like I mean, it, so so it's pretty much it, it doesn't really break new ground in the superhero movies. It just sort of like does the formula very well. No. Yeah. The, the other piece I, of that is, oh, the CIA has just learned about the existence of mutants and then whisks them off to their mutant research center. Yeah, yeah. where it's like, well, oh, is it Oliver Platt? Who's yeah, like, it was Oliver Platt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> they, 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 um, they lampshade that, right? Like Platt sort of drop it, uh, drops out that he's, uh, oh, you know, I've been talking to these guys about this for yeah. years. I've been planning this for years. Blah, blah. I mean, that shot where the camera actually rides in between those two guys' shoulders, like in the cut, and you see Oliver Platt being like, oh, my God, this is my moment. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've got a crazy mutant research facility. <laughs> they all said yeah. it was mad. Mad, I tell you. <laughs> do, do, we even, do we even learn his name? Because like, he exists solely to do that, right? There's no other – he has no other point. It's no, for, especially he, has, Platt, right? he literally has no name. He's the man in black. Oh, fantastic. Which, he wears white for a, more than a small part of the movie, right? Does he have a lab coat or no? He's wearing a suit the whole time. Uh, well, well, I mean, not, not only does he not have a name, but is pretty distinctly Oliver Platt. But you know, there's also another famous cameo by Michael Ironside as the the captain of the <laughs> yes. naval destroyer. Oh my and God! First in a laughter and applause that happened. That was hilarious. We lowered the monocle. Has ever been and, more fantastic than Michael Ironside? <laughs> and he never gets a name either. So he is essentially Captain Michael Ironside <laughs> of the USS Ironside. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> That's awesome. So, I mean, let me ask you this. I don't know. I felt like the cast of characters in this movie could not work without this, like, pressing, oppressive need to reference the X-Men comic book series, right? Because it's like – I feel like, like Angel – what, like that does that character is is an is an abortion. I mean, I hate to say it, but that character is wow. Like, I mean, I don't know. I just like because Angel. Well, Pete, what? Pete. I mean, you know, they they already killed off the one black character. They need to in the same scene have the mulata betray her good friends. <laughs> well, I also liked it because it upped it up. Like that's maybe the first stripper in cinema who turned out not to have a heart of gold. <laughs> I like that. I was really hoping at, at the point that they revealed her. I was I was just praying that it was going to be a Dazzler character. <laughs> I like, just hope. <laughs> does anyone else know Dazzler? Any of our listeners know Dazzler? Like I, worst... I, know, I know I know Dazzler. Yeah, yeah. Dazzler's I'm... the sort of character like you see Jubilee and you're like, yeah, she's good. But I wonder if she could be even less well thought out. Yeah, and she'd be called the Jazzler, right? If she were. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, she is as seen on TV. Um, I hope the X-Men First Class was originally written as the pilot of an HBO show, which is why there's a scene that Charles Xavier and Eric and Magneto have to go to a strip club. Like, <laughs> we have to go there. Tony Soprano's sitting there right in the front. Yeah, but to, uh, but to, to bring it back on topic for a bit, you, you didn't like the Angel character in this movie because I... I liked the angel character in this movie more than I liked the angel character in any of the comic book incarnations. Well, yeah, like the, but I mean, come the, on. The angel character in the comic book is, you know, a, a rich white blonde guy whose attributes are being rich and white and having wings. Right. Uh, they make him kind of gay, right, in the third one? Because um, yeah. he's in it. Isn't he in it? And they make him, I don't know, maybe no, they just like. It's, it's, it's not that it's not... a pre fame Ben Foster before 310 to Yuma hit. Oh, okay. Fair uh, but yes, he is. He is pretty game. 
I don't yeah. think I don't think it's that like he, the character is never described as gay. It's like the the relationship with his father who disapproves of him is sort of a parallel to like the right. coming out idea. And also that like there's a shot in the movie where he soars triumphantly over the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. <laughs> it's very <laughs> you make an excellent point. Yeah. Um, Dave was talking about lampshading, which is not a phrase that I'm familiar with, but I think what it means is like going out of your way to explain something. It's 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 sort of a perfunctory uh, nod to the to sort of keep the fourth wall intact. No, it, it's, 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 a, it's a stopgap to sort of keep people's suspension of disbelief in check. No, that's not, that's not quite the same thing. Lampshading is when you know that it's stupid and you like let the audience know that you're in on the joke. Lampshading uh, is like in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie that I saw, which no one else saw. There's a scene where Johnny Depp <laughs> is walking down the beach on his own and he says, look, there, that shipwreck. It's like the, the lost ship of Ponce de Leon. And then he sort of turns around and he's like, oh, wait, there's no one here. That's hanging a lampshade on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, well, in terms of just going and like needlessly explaining a lot of things, this movie really went out of its way. Like to to fit into the continuity, like they they make special mention of the fact that Mystique's blood cells are going to keep her young, so that when she's young in the you know the three movies that had already been made, it makes sense. And then when Beast injects himself with those cells, that's what you know he could be young in the future when when he's Niles. Um, Frazier. Like, Frazier. Yeah, Frazier. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> Frazier. Um, but they do a lot of. I mean, they, they really go out of their way to like fix the little. I'm, there were a couple other examples too. I can't. I can't think of them right now. But I felt like I was sort of surprised. I thought this movie was going to largely ignore the the other three, but it really made a lot of effort to to keep the story going. Yeah, I mean, of course, it has that wonderful, wonderful cameo, which is one of my favorite cameos I've seen in a long time. Which is that like one shot of Hugh Jackman in the bar drinking whiskey. Yeah. That, that Actually, was, that the was cameo really from Rebecca Romaine was pretty great too. That's true. Yeah. That was a yeah. one too. Yep. Uh, there should have been a cameo of uh, Halle Berry being like, what happens to a frog hit by a nuclear missile? Same hey. thing as everything else. Uh, so, but really, this movie belongs to Magneto. So let's talk about Magneto. Let's talk about his character. Let's talk about his cultural resonance. Let's talk about all the stuff about him that has got everybody thinking. I mean, first of all, I'm kind of wondering if this movie was Michael Fassbender's coming out party and the way that the first X-Men movie was Hugh Jackman's coming out party. Mm-hmm. Michael I mean, Fassbender. He's, he's, he's fantastic in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, he's yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I thought here, here's the movie, uh, the moment in the movie I thought was the most interesting for me is that uh, Magneto is on the beach and he's got all the missiles suspended and he's turning them around towards the humans, but he hasn't yet fired them. So you sort of feel like he's considering whether he really wants to wipe out the navies. And uh, Charles is trying to talk him down from it. And what he says is that those are good men out there and they're just following orders, which, of course, is the absolute wrong thing to say because it's, it's a very <laughs> yeah. conscious echo of the Nuremberg defense that that's what the, the Nazis were arguing uh, when they were put on trial after the war, which is that, like, well, sure, we did bad things, but we're just soldiers and we were just told to do them. And, of course, Magneto is not buying it. He's, he says, I've been at the mercy of men following orders before never again and then he launches the missiles and try to wipe them out which I mean at that moment you know the argument taken in a vacuum he's on the right side of that that like we you know given the historical perspective do not believe that just following orders is a good justification for doing evil things but I mean but it's also entirely possible that Magneto's response is out of proportion that like we don't really want him to wipe out those navies but we also probably feel that just following orders wasn't 
the reason not to do it. So that like it, it really is an interesting moment where we see both sides of the argument. Mm. We we totally sympathize with him. Well, they also they telegraph the uh, following orders thing. The the Nazis in Argentina when he does that awesome knife move and kills them. One of them says yeah. just following orders. Yeah. Um, the the guys in the ships though like. I don't know that that argument holds up because they don't know why they're shooting at a beach. <laughs> That's true. It's not like, oh, I got to kill this woman like, because I got to for the leg stack or whatever. Well, they, they yeah. do make several explicit references in the dialogue to orders. Like the, the Russian commander says, oh, you know, I, I'm looking for new orders. And the, the commissar behind him says, you have your orders. Why are you waiting for new ones? And then after the submarine surfaces, Commander Michael Ironside says, call into sync compact. I want, I want new orders on this. So there are several explicit references in the dialogue to people waiting for orders from above to decide who to shoot at. But I think Josh's point is correct, which is that the people on the boats don't know about mutants. They haven't received this order that, like, we need to hunt down and kill the mutants. They were just told that they need to fire on the beach because there's a security risk there. So they Not even because really... why. It's just like, you know... You know, fire on coordinates, blah, 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 them. you know, yeah. and then they turn the wheel and they hit the button. Well, and they, they've just witnessed a, uh, a submarine <laughs> get ripped from the ocean <laughs> and float onto the uh, onto the beach, right? I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, they have every reason to feel that there's something on the beach that might need to be destroyed. So that, yeah. like, it's it's not the same as, like, Nazis who were running a concentration camp and then claimed that, like, well, that's just what they told us to do. Yeah. Well, Although, well, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, uh, actually, Belinky, I'd take slightly the opposite tack, or at least an orthogonal tack, and say if, if we consider the events of the movie as evidence in an argument, quote-unquote, then I'd, I'd say it pretty compellingly makes the case for Magneto's side in that the movie demonstrates the powerlessness of nation-states to resolve crises without destroying, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives. And that, you know, the, the U.S. and the Soviets come almost to the brink of nuclear war, and it takes the action of a small handful of mutants operating outside of the rule of law and the institutions of nations to, to save the world from nuclear destruction. So, I mean, it's, it really comes down to two guys. It's Magneto and Xavier on the beach, you know, duking it out, whether or not the U.S. and the Soviets end up destroying each other. That's true, but I, I'd like to go back to the point that Mark raised earlier in the podcast, which is that that it, within this movie, the U.S. and the Soviets never would have been there had not Sebastian Shaw gone through great lanes to push both sides in that direction. And right. I, think, I think he was complaining that it takes some of the culpability away from the decision-making. That, I mean, at, at two points in the movie, Shaw approaches uh, these military men, and the American is like, well, we can't put missiles in Turkey. That would be, you know, that would, that would aggravate the Soviets. That would be a crazy thing to do. And he's sort of forced to do it. And then the Soviets are like, we can't put missiles in Cuba. That would be a crazy thing to do. So in this movie, both sides sort of realize that, that the bricksmanship that they're playing and they're only sort of like really strong armed into, in, into the situation. So that it's, it's, it's not as if like they, they drift to war on their own. That, that like it's really a, a proxy war between Shaw and the X-Men. I've got to, I got to disagree because it's just, he doesn't go to great lengths. Uh, I forget the I forget the, I forget the rank of the sexy links. No, well, I mean, he's talking to a colonel in Vegas. Like, if you can get a, a colonel in Vegas to like put, I mean, clearly the U.S. was headed in that direction. If like all he needed to do was change the colonel's mind, um, I think, well, I, think I think the U.S. the U.S. is so. Well, didn't they um, which, say which that Lockheed me... Martin was at the Hellfire Club? Didn't they say right. something along he, Yeah, he was probably had more po- power than the colonel, um, yeah. if history's <laughs> any guide. Uh, which brings me, brings me to a question. Um, the desk 
that all the, the generals are sitting at uh, when they're making the decisions <laughs> is the exact same desk as in Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same war room, right? Does that exist? Or is uh, is this is this just like Doctor Strange Live Revisited? I actually I want I want our listeners to figure that out and comment on it because I'm I'm fascinated. Like because we've just clearly come to believe that that's what happened. Personally, I don't think you would ever want like 40 people in a room to make any decision. Like I hope that's not how it works. <laughs> First of all, how, how do you clean the middle of that desk without getting your footprints all over the outside of it? It's just it raises all these logistical. See, that's problems. what the Soviets have the advantage because they have the two women in the middle. Now, yeah. that's not a very nice thing for them to. <laughs> I thought it was funny. They're all looking at the typists. Like that's what they're doing. They're looking at the stenographers. Yeah, that is part of the glorious plan. You know, both genders are, are equal siblings in the great machine. <laughs> well, well, well th- this is a good segue into when I was talking about style earlier. The, the movie has a few very deliberate uh, stylistic mirrors in this case, cin- uh, cinematography mirrors. In that, you know, when the when the U.S. decides to set up this line of embarkation around Cuba, there's the shot in the war room, and we have the circular desk, and the Americans making their decision. And then when the Soviets decide to to bull on anyway and back up the the missile ships with their own fleet, there's the shot of the the semicircular desk in the Kremlin and and all the the generals surrounding that, and then at various points in the missile crisis, there are mirroring shots of you know the American command ship commanded by Michael Ironsides being shot from one angle and the Soviet command ship being shot from the other angle, and there's also a lot of parallel dialogue as well. So there are very deliberate efforts made to to show like a, a sort of literal consanguinity i guess between the two between the two sides in the conflict the the mirror image like oh these aren't the good guys or bad guys these are these are the same people just on opposite sides of the globe and if they made this movie like 20 years ago it would have been a lot different even you know it would have been like the soviets you never see their faces and they just speak in subtitles and they're all wearing ski helmets for some reason and it's like oh no (laughs) yeah (laughs) they all look notably germanic yeah, exactly. They all look like tall Germans. <laughs> I do think, though, that there's a, there's something to what Mark was saying, that this movie reduces that conflict to a playground in which the, the heroes and villains can duke it out. I don't think, though, that that's unique to this movie. I think that that's just kind of the way that, that storytelling, and especially, like, war stories get told, um, going back easily to the Iliad, where you have all of these huge giant armies lined up, and then you have like two guys who have names go out and chop their way through the ranks until they can duke it out with each other. And there's never there's never an opportunity for a character who isn't like, you know, uh, Hector or uh, or Achilles to get anything done. They are driving the, the engines of history. And that's right. sort of the situation you have here. Like the, the war is caused by a mutant Shaw. It's going to be solved by mutants, um, Xavier and Magneto. And uh, the next big global crisis that comes around will also be caused by mutants and resolved by mutants. And everybody else, you know, sits back and watches yeah. it. That, that's, never, that's, never doubt that a small group of committed mutants can change the world. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that ever has. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's a pretty common trope. In, sto- in, in fact, I'd say it's the overwhelming majority of storytelling. This isn't David Simon's X-Men. This isn't, you know, X-Men Life on the Streets or Although, The well, the wire. Oh God, that'd be awesome. <laughs> but that, but that X Men life on the streets. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. I, I wonder to what degree, though, that that's um, a factor of like the the American method of storytelling, right? I mean, this is the narrative in which we frame the birth of our own nation, um, and, and the sort of underdog story, the sort of rising against all odds to to 
you know, overcome uh, a power that's seemingly impossible. You know, this is the way that we we sort of tell all of our stories, right? This is the American military history as we'd like to believe it, as opposed to the actual truth, which is that for most of it, we've been the dominant power on the planet uh, and the bully. I mean, I don't think we've been the dominant power on the planet for most of our history, although it depends on when you consider our history to have started, I guess. Uh, I mean, certainly we weren't the dominant power on the planet, like, going into World War One. Oh, yeah, not... Right. not, no, but, not our, but our but history, really, like, our history you, really started at Bretton Woods. So... <laughs> <laughs> Since then, oh man, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It, the, to what I, I mean is, is are the characters, um, are the characters there to represent kind of analytical sides of of, of the of the of the of the sort of calculus of these sorts of historical events? Like, is is Sebastian? Uh, is he part of all of us, right? Is he like an aspect of the situation, an aspect <laughs> of all nations, right? Or is it, or is this no really like a situation where we have champions for individual people? What? Because in a way, aren't all of us Nazi Kevin Bacon with a mustache? <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know, like he was not Nazi Kevin Bacon cast the first stone, okay? <laughs> oh, man. Ow, stop hitting me. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, I mean, I think that, I mean, nations themselves are this. Because nations don't exist, right? Like, nations are simplifications or narrativizations, right? There's, like, contracts that are represent nations. But, like, it's not like, you know, France decides to do something. There's no, like, will of Germany. There's no, like, America that decides to go and kill all the Native Americans. There's, like, large groups of people that move with varying degrees of cooperation and competition with one another, right? And it's, like, tremendously sure. complex and chaotic. It's funny. Uh, the one, uh, one counterexample, of course, is the country that Dr. Doom is the head of state of, right? Uh, Latveria. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and that in the Vatican. Latveria and the Vatican are pretty much the, but only Latveria has a time machine. Um, so, uh, are, are you sure about that, Pete? That's, that's a good point. I mean, are you willing to go on the record and say that the Vatican yeah. does not have time travel? Have you not uh, seen Van Helsing? <laughs> and, and besides, Doctor Doctor Doom does not have papal infallibility, so really, it's kind of a kind of a draw. If all the priests were robot clones of the Pope, I feel like they'd be doing a lot better with the middle demographics in America. I feel like they <laughs> said was Pope, 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 and like ran around. Also, uh, if all the priests were uh, robot clones of the Pope, we wouldn't have the, you know the child sex abuse crisis. Oh, today. it took us. Oh, like, I went there. Oh, yeah. craziness. Uh, <laughs> You would have the entire priesthood having been Hitler Youth, though, so we can come full circle on that one. They need him filling up his hand to block off the missiles. Anybody else notice it was like his right hand fully extended in like a full-on salute? I thought that was like a nice note um, that that Magneto was actually like giving the Sig Heil while he was talking about never, you know, never again, right? Um, I don't know that that was intentional. I mean, what, what was his other option? Like fist bump the missiles? Like. That's the universal gesture for oh. stop missiles. I mean, you gotta go rock horns, man. I mean, that's how I would have stopped the missiles too. His, his <laughs> other option is to is to mirror um, Ian Ian McKellen from the first X Men movie, who does not reach his hand up at a forty five degree angle with a straight palm. He reaches his hand out in front of him and kind of extends his fingers. And like you sort of remember, you remember that scene? It's the same scene where he does it with the cops' guns, where the cops are, are trying to ambush Magneto as he's coming out of the building, and Magneto takes their guns away and turns them around and cocks them. And has the point to everybody, and he sort of reaches out almost like with this this like spreading hand, this like claw grip, right? And it's not a, a not a full on straight arm Nazi salute. I mean, it's a subtle difference, but it's acted very differently. And I can almost guarantee you that the actor had to confront that choice at some point, unless the director was like, "This is where your hand has to be so that the effect works," uh, which is possible. But 
deconstructionism and postmodernism hadn't really been invented yet. So uh, in a couple of years, someone will point out to Magneto, like, hey, isn't that a little evocative of Nazis? And they'll be like, oh, right, let me work on lowering my arm a little. And then, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I was actually going for the ancient Roman salute. I'm sorry. I will say my favorite effect of the time period setting of this movie is they got to wear the yellow outfits because they made sense in the 60s. The first X-Men movie, Hugh Jackman is like, well, you like yellow spandex better? And everyone's like, har, har, har. The X-Men look ridiculous. Um, (laughs) Because they always wear those crazy Actually, I kind of thought they looked better in these than they do in the black leather. Oh, yeah, totally. It's a lot less fetishistic. Hopefully in the next Batman movie, they'll put Christian Bale in, like, the blue tights like he belongs. Or in the gray tights. <laughs> Actually, you know, uh, it's, good. it's interesting to say because my favorite sort of nod to the 60s aesthetic was the sort of octagonal mirrored room in which Shaw kept his nuclear reactor. Which <laughs> looked to be hucked directly out of a, a, a Bort Ward Adam West Batman villain set, right? Um, uh, it's a shame we didn't get any Enter the Dragon scenes in there where it's like... Oh, God. Oh man, that would be sick. It's, like, it's like I am shown off the Shogun of Harlem. Um, anybody? Anybody? So, yeah. So, Thank speaking you. Of, speaking of Shaw and his entourage, particularly Emma Frost, this this is my my jumping off point to the the fact that every female with a, a speaking part in the movie gets in their underwear at some point. Like every female with a speaking yes. part, with I believe the exception of Magneto's mom, is, is it? <laughs> Is at some point Quintus in the Holocaust, and there's enough naked Holocaustness in the movies. Thank you very much. We do not have to do it here. Yeah. So how how do we feel about that? I mean, a, a lot of the a lot of the female comic book fans who I you know who I know and follow on Twitter, you know, they're they're fans of Michael Fassbender and James McAvoy. So I'd imagine if if they were in, if the director were interested in being you know in showing equanimity, you know there could have been some shirtless shots of Fassbender or, or McAvoy or something like that. But uh, but no, it's it's pretty much just explicitly you know female eye candy, and then you know we'll get the guys in tight shirts every once in a while. But otherwise, that's really it. Yeah, the parade of of like underwear clad women at the beginning really just set the tone for the film. Yeah, <laughs> and it was sort of it was sort of meta, really. I haven't seen a scene like that since the skulls where like they all they, like Craig T. Nelson is like bringing in the ladies and they all like walk in and it's like and they play higher by Creed in that scene. Which is <laughs> yeah, we, we already we already talked about the fact that um, they they get all the non-white people out of the way real quick. But notice that the X-Men team that you're left with at the end is all male, like the both yeah. women. Yeah. The yeah. Actually, I was going to point that out. That probably the one thing that I was least satisfied with in the movie was um, was the White Queen, was Emma Frost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that it seems like January Jones just sort of ends up playing the 60s repressed housewife character, even if that character can turn herself into solid diamond and has, like, telepathic abilities. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, yeah, when she when has he to tells her to, yeah, go get the ice. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, it was, more, it was less that because, I mean, you know, there she's, she's already established sort of a power relationship with her boss. It's more that um, when Xavier and Magneto subdue her in the Russian palace, um, there's no way. I mean, she's, she's one of the world's most powerful telepaths. And she's really going to be done in by a couple of, like, you know, bedposts. You know, it's yeah. just not. They do, they, and they are tying her to a bed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kind of ridiculous. In her underwear. Right. Well, that that and the fact that you know when she's captured by the you know when she's captured by the two of them and she's held in the CIA's I guess mutant research facility, she stays there the entire time despite having the evinced power to 
cut through any yeah. restraints they have on her. <laughs> and to easily. minds. Right. And, yeah, exactly. and to also be very attractive and appear in underwear. So I, I think given the three of those, she should be able to overcome any guards they could put on her. The thing is, like, that right. character, I could see a storyline where she basically stays in captivity because it's, it's her own choice and that she's got some sort of larger plan in the works. Like, she's, she's a mastermind-type character in the comic books. Right, right, right. She's the sort of docile person who sort of fits, fits in as, like, a second-in-command role, just, like, didn't jive with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she has the superpower of habeas corpus, although I guess they talked about huh. that in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> the other character that really – the character arc that bothered me the most was Beast – <laughs> when, we, when we meet Beast, like Xavier outs him as a mutant, right, in front of his boss, who he's worked for for several years, uh, and had, has not figured out that he's a mutant because he's cleverly disguised his mutant power with shoes. <laughs> like, but, he, but then he spends the entire rest of the movie, like, being angsty about being a freak. And we're like, just, like, you can't go to the beach. Like, this is the only problem that you have. Like, you have to wear clothes to it shoes. Uh, it just didn't really work. He's also a very pretty boy. Like it's it's like he's almost like it's almost like a porn casting because it's like oh put these glasses on and like you know it, I, I didn't even buy it. I didn't buy it for, for a second that he was actually like oh I'm a I'm freak I'm ugly no girls ever like me I'm only six three you know like, <laughs> <laughs> well, no 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 there's like a, there's a like real problem here right hold on a second right if he starts to get busy with the girl you know the clothes come off and things that what do the socks stay on. Hey, listen, listen, it's not classy, but it's been done a few thousand times. <laughs> yeah, the married couples figure this out after a while. You keep on your hiking boots. Uh, wait, no. This <laughs> just shows that there's a market for really awesome socks. <laughs> yes, definitely. Nice. That would have been better if instead of like trying to make a serum, he was just trying to make the sexiest socks. Incredible socks. <laughs> <laughs> Rather oh, than like, you know, it's like, so have you, have you got my flying cape worked out yet? No, but check out these socks. Or if he'd invented like those Vikram five finger shoes, you know, <laughs> years and years ahead, like check out these cutting edge shoes. They have toes in them. <laughs> You're insane. It'll never work. You're mad. I tell you mad. This is a product placement. All, all yeah. of his uh, inventions that he does, there's like one line that just blew me away where like, I think it's Mystique talking to Beast and she says, just think about all the great stuff we've done this week. I know. <laughs> yeah. The whole training montage, the inventing of the wings, the inventing of the Havoc, like chest speaker, all of that. Five days. He's awesome. a very useful <laughs> dude to have around. Yeah, he yeah. seriously is. You know, that's yeah, kind of biblical, few... right? You know, God created the world in seven days. <laughs> Doctor X created the X Men in seven days. It really shows you the power of the training montage, though, right? Like when <laughs> when Angel has the dogfight with Banshee, right? One of those people has been flying their whole life. <laughs> One of them has just figured out a way to sort of um, fly, rig it together, kind of the way that you can use bombs to like make Samus Aran climb walls in Metroid, right? <laughs> <laughs> or the way the A team uses the, the the gun to steer the tank as it's falling. Exactly <laughs> right. And one of these people wins the fight. It's not the yeah. one you're thinking. Spoiler right. alert. Right, right, right. Fair enough. Oh, another question, uh, Azazel. Like yes, Nightcrawler yeah. clearly. Right? Well, it's his dad. It's better, better it's than Nightcrawler dad. because he can teleport yeah. ah. where he can't see. Yeah, Azazel is Nightcrawler's dad, and Azazel is not really supposed to be able to sort of stay in the human world as a henchman, like inevitable, like indefinitely. He's from this like brimstone dimension, and he's able to like blink into existence briefly, and then like he has to go back. Wait, so he's not a mutant? 
Uh, he's he's a mutant, but he's like ancient mutant. He's like he's like from like thousands and thousands of years ago. And I think I don't know if there's a mutant. He's, he's almost borderline like supernatural being kind of guy. I think there's like a reason he's they a- didn't let him talk in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was I was reading up on on Azazel or Azazel as they keep saying, um, and it, yeah, it's fun. really depressing because you have, you realize with. When you're writing the X-Men, the fact that everyone has to be a mutant is sort of a, a millstone around your neck, right? right? So Azazel is part of an ancient race of demonic mutants. I'm not making that up. <laughs> called, like, basically the Nephilim. And they fight an ancient race of angelic mutants named, like, basically the Cherubim. They, they, <laughs> they, like, they throw in an extra syllable there. <laughs> but that's what's going on. Oh, man. I, so- thought, I thought it was going to be, like, Nightcrawler, but he ended up, like, taking some of, like, you know, doing, sh- like... Uh- shooting up with the beast and they turned blue and then lost his memory or whatever. (laughs) The reason that Nightcrawler is blue is that Azazel is Nightcrawler's father, but his mother is Mystique. So so, so mutant skin color uh, follows the mother. Oh, it could be X-linked. So if if, if we'd uh, we'd stuck around till... (laughs) Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Unintentional pun man away! (laughs) If we'd stuck around till after the credits, we could have seen like him hitting on her in a bar as like the setup for the next movie. Yeah. But, well, you do sort of have to wonder about like what's what they've got planned for the sequel. I mean, the thing that immediately jumped out at me is at the beginning of uh, X Men Three, which if you haven't seen it, you don't really have to. But uh, there's a scene that's set in like the early '80s or something where Professor X and Magneto are, are still working together. That they go to they go to see Jean Grey as a as a team, um, so that. The, the the sort of the, the the sort of estrangement between them that that at the end of this movie uh, doesn't necessarily continue through its sequels. Well, they yeah, stopped... one of those like you know when will they get back together? Will they or won't they relationships? You know, yeah. like, well, when it's time sweeps, they'll get back together. I stopped reading X Men comics in like the mid nineties, but you know every once in a while you walk past a comic store and I feel like pretty much every year Magneto switches allegiances. <laughs> like I well, think that's a pretty yeah. common trope throughout. Like he's probably been they've been like friends and enemies. Like that cycle is repeated fifteen times by the eighties. Yeah. yeah. Basically. Yeah, they just keep they basically like they they're like friends they're like friends that can't stay friends and they keep sort of slipping into these weird hookups and battles and then they fight and they break up and they get back together. It's really, so what I want to I want to see though is when are we gonna get to see Apocalypse on screen? We haven't seen En Sabanur, right? We haven't seen um Although I guess he's kind of a tough character. He's not really a tough character. You just sort of avoid the whole like, oh, I have like rapid matter, you know, uh, transmutation properties that I use to sustain my body and all this other stuff, and maybe simplify that a little bit. But like, he's one of the greater comic book villains that you haven't seen on screen yet, right? Like, I don't know, though, they do a real hard... bad job with the like the more cosmic, cosmic. and existential. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they 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 took a uh, Galactus to the the toilet real bad, right? In, oh yeah, the <laughs> Fantastic, Fantastic Four franchise is like the freaking like Arby's truck stop of superhero movies. Oh, thing! Like, why are you in this movie? Like, oh, I was the commish. Oh no, Jessica Alba's in her underpants again. Oh no, like, <laughs> flame on! Like, it's like it's it's basically like I think they even use one of the guys from Mutant X as Doctor Doom, right? Like, it's the same dude. I'm sorry, I just have a I don't know. I have a real distaste for those Fantastic Four movies. I I don't want to go off on a rant or anything like that but i uh, kind of i want to see uh genosha actually not in its uh 
because it, it eventually becomes Magneto's mutant colony, right? But it starts off as a sort of apartheid slave state where mutants are uh, are second class citizens and wear like exploding collars and things like that, right? Oh, That's right. A, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's run by uh, the Reavers, right? Mm. Who, who take the my my vote for like villains I'd like to see on screen. I do love that Genosha has its own Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> it's, just, it's like wiki.org.cn. <laughs> that's def- that is uh yeah, that's like that this is the kind of stuff that you can find out a lot out of, about on Wikipedia, definitely. Um so is there gonna be like a Gaza strip on Genosha? Is that like are we gonna be like that dead on with the uh the metaphor or no? I, um, I think oh, it would absolutely be the six day war. Yeah. Look <laughs> 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 we, we just we just want uh, everyone to respect the pre-crisis on Infinite Earth's borders, okay? <laughs> well, they can still do Days of Future Past. Oh, no, but they sort of did that in X-Men 3, right? Like, yeah. sort of? Yeah, where it's like, yeah, I guess. Well, and anytime the Sentinels show up, it's basically, uh, it's basically yeah. that, right? Yeah, pretty Wait, much. So in, that, in, that, in, saga too. In, in that Zionist analogy, who are the Palestinians? Like, who, who, do the, who do the mutants repress within their, within their little, you know, promised land? I don't do know. Really, I don't know. Do you really want this. to push this line of discussion? What do, what do you mean? Are you afraid? Like, are, are you think that that we're going to get like some sort of JDL like on us? No, we're talking. It's a metaphor. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I just have, don't think there is a parallel in this sort of X Men universe. They have done some interesting things. They've tried to occasionally bringing in people who are mutants but don't have useful powers, and the they are like of his arms. Yeah, they're they're like very second class citizens within the sort of new order that Magneto is trying to uh, to set up. Like the, the guy who has an extra toe in the middle of his palm, uh, he is a mutant, but he he's useless to their society. Yeah, the the problem like is that one it's very... crisis that he's the only one who can resolve it. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's uh it's really hard to write a good story about that guy, unfortunately. So it's one of those ideas that like. The uh, the the writer creates this whole community, and they're there for one episode, and then they're there on Wikipedia for the end of time. That's I mean, because one of the points that Professor X makes when he macks on the ladies is that, like, a lot of traits are mutants, right? Like, all traits are mutations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Does, 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 like, Magneto get the girl with the one blue eye, like, on his team? Although that's more of a rap term. <laughs> in, in, in the comics, they actually they they do address this, right? Because you know, mutant as a genetic term, yeah, it does really describe basically every morphological, biochemical thing that goes on. Versus like mutant as like a new species, as like yeah, a, yeah. yeah. They, they actually they say that there's an X gene, and that to qualify as a mutant in the way that you think about it, you know, in the superhero context, you have to have you know some variant of this X gene. Right. Um, yeah. You know. So yeah. You know, what's never showed up in the comic books, which always frustrated me because I think it's such an awesome comic book term, is the genetic um, uh, antonym of the phrase mutant. Like when, when you talk in genetics, you know, the opposite of mutant is uh, the wild type, which just sounds awesome. <laughs> like that, would, that would be my ironical mutant superhero name. Yeah. I'm, I'm the wild type. <laughs> and if you are the wild type, why don't you leave us a comment? On the- <laughs> Get into a little bit of play more. You know, you don't have to, but you know, cats away, mice will play. And rather, we'll be back from his submarine before too long to pacify everybody again. Or you can give us a call at two zero. What is it? Is there a fat two zero two zero two zero three two eight five six four zero one? Yes, definitely. And I'm, we'll listen to you, even though rather is, is always. I want to keep playing good cops so I can get the audience on my side to overthrow the government. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. But if, you, if, you're, if you're a mutant like we are and you want to join us, the revolution is coming and you want to be on the right side. And what side is that, you ask? Why the side of www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject <laughs> the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably doesn't deserve <laughs> Really get into like the whole homoerotic subtext a lot. No, or, or the or the prepubescent um, mystique was a little weird. I thought at the beginning. We should really Some do an episode of these effing teenagers just about this movie. It's <laughs> not yet feminine mystique, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs>